0: Welcome, everybody, to the Integrate Yourself Podcast. You're listening to episode 33. You can find me, Allison, at pureenergypdx.com, and you can find Maya at mayagotlib.com. Maya and I are both certified nutrition and fitness coaches, and together we share over 20 years' experience in the field, coaching clients, and doing our own research on leading edge nutrition and fitness in regard to hormonal balance and aging. This show is all about sharing with you creative ways you can integrate all aspects of health into your life. Today we're speaking with James Hollis. He's a Jungian analyst based out of Washington, D.C., where he's also executive director of the Jungian Society of Washington. He has published 15 books translated into 19 languages and lectures widely on five continents. His latest books are Hauntings and Living and examined life. In this episode, we talk about topics that are related to James' latest book. We talk about the first half of life and how the the first half of life is just basically developing the ego, you know, and and making. Uh, getting grounded in life and then from there then you really you know at the second half of life is when you when you really start examining your life meaning you know leaving behind expectations of others growing into the person you were meant to be. This is something all of us go through in midlife and finding your purpose and actually connecting with that is a big thing as well and James shares uh, his own journey and shift and and re- Reevaluating his purpose, re-examining it in his midlife. So, so much wisdom in this show. I can't wait for you guys to hear it. I hope you guys enjoy it as much as Maya and I did. Thanks again, you guys. Without further ado, here's the show.
1: I just want to welcome Dr. James Hollis. Dr. Hollis, thank you for coming on our show.
2: Well, it's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Um, one of the things I wanted to actually talk to you about was some great uh, quotes that you kind of implied, but left the audience to decide for themselves was, um, what is the sense of mortality and w- why should I live longer? And um, the reason why I wanted to talk about this was because we actually um, help people um, try to find their way through integrating the work that they find on their path. Um, both Allison and I became very intrigued on our own mishaps and uh, our own ways of uh, finding how to uh, do it right or do it wrong. So we're trying to take information and provide it to other people so that they can kind of listen to their hidden guidance and then know where and who and what they are in their purpose and their meaning. So when people are trying to basically uh live longer lives like in more abundantly um what is it that they're kind of working with because we talk you talk about the ego and how the soul's calling but the ego is kind of driving the boat when it's a little bit of a chaotic um churning of who they are and what they are in the world can you tell us a little bit about how that process can be more i guess Delineated into a more aligned place for someone.
2: Well, of course, these are very large questions, and let me just try to set some background, if I may. Um, we begin our life tiny, vulnerable, dependent, of course, and we have to sort of find our way, fit into the world, trying to um, get the approval of others, without which we will literally perish and um, make ourselves in some way uh, a kind of provisional life in the world as it presents itself to us. We have no powers over how it is. We simply have to try to find our path to it and through it and, and fit in in the best we can, which means we have to be creatures of adaptation, and we all are, fortunately and those adaptations allow us security safety and and belonging and all of those sorts of things however we often find in the in the face of our adaptations we also progressively get separated from something deep within ourselves our own instinctual truth if you will um we we begin to lose contact with those sources of guidance within us the actual feeling function we may be swarming with feelings But which ones from from all of that plethora of impulses within us are are really coming from our truth, our depth, and which ones are reacting to the circumstances around us? Or the routinized behaviors that we have. We have to develop. We develop patterns. I've often said to people, one of the first places to begin your self-analysis is look at your patterns in your life. You don't rise in the morning and say, well, today I'm going to do the same stupid things I've done for decades, but there's a good chance that you will. Because there's so much in our life that's conditioned by those adaptive patterns and by the sort of driving energies that Jung called complexes, which uh, are are really clusters of our history, which tell us what we can do, what we can't do, which, uh, again, lead us toward adaptation and fitting in, but often at the price of our, our own integrity. So whenever a person is obliged or feels necessary to examine oneself in a very substantial way um, then the project of the second half of life begins the first half of life is about ego development and what do i need to do to be able to function in this world to support myself establish relationship etc etc but in the second half of life whenever that occurs and it's not a chronological moment as much as it is a psychological moment the question rather comes up and and so what is my life about really why am I here really in service to what really and you know it's our condition is always bound by the fact that we're mortal and you mentioned the uh, Atlanta presentation recently and part of what I was trying to suggest there is that part of a healthy second half of life requires a continuing sort of awareness of mortality Now, an awareness of mortality is not the same as the fear of mortality. Uh, It's it's rather asking very pragmatic questions. What does my mortality keep me from doing with my life, or what is it forcing me to do with my life? In both cases, I need to examine that and, and see, you know, is that the kind of life I want to be living? Are those the kinds of choices I really feel good about? Are they confirmed by something going on inside of me? And many times we find the answer, it's not. And so, you know, when, when we allow ourselves to remember whether or not you believe in an afterlife, and some people do and some people don't, this is the life we have. This is the one we know we get. This is the one in which we're conscious, relatively speaking. And therefore it behooves each of us to try to make choices that we find are constructive and and which are are in some way based on what wants to enter the world through me in other words the first half of life is what does the world want from me and so we as i said we try to meet those demands fit in as best we can and create a provisional life the real question after that though is what does the soul want of me now soul's not a very sort of popular word in modern psychology, in fact it's sort of banished from modern psychology, but it really speaks to the question of our being that meaning-seeking, meaning-creating animal. In other words, more people suffer, disconnect from meaning than any other single source of suffering in their lives. So if I experience meaning, I have a sense of purpose, I have a sense of the reason why in the face of whatever struggles and conflicts life takes me to. So it's a complicated question. This is again just sort of setting the table and saying that I take it from your questions, where we are in this interview is to sort of examine, you know, what are the kinds of questions I need to be looking at in the second half of life to sort of recover my own path, to find my own personal source of authority and uh, to be able to to live a more conscious and um, self-directed life especially because mortality frames it and because it frames it my choices matter and i'll add a footnote here before turning that back to you i find sadly that so many of our behaviors and patterns are fear-based you know fear-driven and that's normal and natural because we're creatures of sensitivity and awareness of our vulnerability and so forth However, there's a big difference between having fear and living a fear-based life. Big difference. So I find that most of the time we, at some deep level, know what's right for us. We know what our path calls us to. We know what is wanting to be achieved in the world through us. And, and yet there are various sort of fears that stand in the way of that. So in, in this work, ultimately, it requires courage to face what needs to be faced. And if I don't have the courage to look at my own life in that way, you know, then then I'm a creature of fate. I'm a creature of adaptations. I'm a creature of the thousand pressures and pulls that afflict all of us on a daily basis. So, uh, again, what the project is, is to have lived this journey as well as you can in the light of the values that really make sense to you not those that were handed to you by your culture, however well-meaning, or your family of origin, however well-meaning, but which seem to be validated by something uh, within that responds in a, in a positive way. When it's right for us, we know it. When it's wrong for us, we also know that. But again, from childhood on, we learn to overrule that in service to adaptation. So in a certain way, it's, it's that collusion with the demands of life that becomes our own worst enemy. You know, our patterns, our adaptations, our our uh, safe places, those are the things that lock us into a smaller life. And as Jung put it so succinctly, we all walk in shoes too small for us. Mm-hmm. Meaning by that, we, we walk in these adaptive patterns rather than the life that we are somehow meant to live. Yeah. So it's a long-winded way of responding to your first thought here.
1: Oh, it's wonderful. It encompassed a lot. And um, your ability to just uh, zone in and figure out what this interview is about was really impressive. Um, The years that you have spent uh, with uh, different people and talking to them is uh, probably been the most cherished thing you've probably done. If I had to uh, pick something, um, because the human nature is is incredible. Uh, Allison, did you have anything you wanted to say?
0: Uh, I just thought that was a great point to bring up about the value system because our value system can be different like you know getting to a certain age where you realize that or maybe you don't ever realize that you have a different value system than your parents or what what you adapted to or even society and getting to that stage in life and, and then having the courage to um, live those values that you get clear on for yourself is a huge. That that was a great point that you made there. I like, and that's kind of how I see it. And um, yeah, I'm not sure if that's exactly what you meant, but that's what that's what it was for
2: me. <laughs> well, of course, yeah. and uh, <laughs> yeah, when I was in Atlanta, I, I mentioned the novella written by uh, Tolstoy, uh, published in 1885, called "The Death of Ivan Illich. and Ivan Illich is a name very much like John Johnson. So he's supposed to be an every person kind of character. And Ivan is a person who gets the message from his culture. Do this, don't do that. He he follows the rules. He he adopts the right social values, the right practices, the right political and social opinions. He goes to the right school. He marries the right person. They live in the right suburb, um, and he uh, you know goes up the career ladder, and so forth. And everything is about fitting in. Life is supposed to flow smoothly and pleasantly, as as he believes. And then one day, uh, a pain appears in his side that doesn't go away. And it's an annoyance, and then it's uh, nagging. And he goes through the stages of dealing with that, that Kubler-Ross later defined in her great work on the stages of death and dying. First was, of course, denial um secondly was um anger at the interruptions to his schedule and his uh, plans uh thirdly was um, bargaining making any kind of deal with any or any supernatural source as possible none of which of course works and and then fourthly is depression and then fifthly he he actually asked some meaningful questions what if my life has been wrong what is it what if it hasn't been my life and Tolstoy never names the illness, but it's consistent with cancer. And, and essentially, what's happening there is um, he he lived a kind of untroubled and therefore unconscious life. And when he's forced to question this, for the first time, he becomes a real human being. He asks a question. What is my life about, really? And interestingly enough, nobody wants to talk to him about that. It's all about they're busy with their schedules and their lives, and, and it's his problem anyhow. And he has three last days of conversation with a illiterate peasant who's assigned to take care of him. And it's the first truly meaningful conversation he's ever had. And then he dies. And his wife wants to um, get the estate settled as quickly as possible so she can move on. Um, his colleagues want to move up into his position in his uh, profession And everybody wants the funeral service over quickly because they have a card game that night. In other Mm -hmm. words, it never strikes anybody. This could be applicable to me. That's, you know, Yvonne's issue. It's Yvonne's life, not mine. And, um, you know, why would Tolstoy have written that, you know, 130 years ago, approximately, except that he saw the same phenomenon. How much of our lives are carried on automatic pilot? And how much are, are, you know, conditioned reflexes and and so forth. So, you know, in in examining that, Tolstoy was seeking, obviously, to, you know, summon the reader in 1885 to some kind of consideration of why am I here? Really, in service to what? Am I just a a wage earner? Am I just a parent? You know, that's a wonderful profession. I'm, I'm I'm a parent and a grandparent but at the same time I also know my life is is another kind of process somehow and unless we ask those questions I don't think we ever really keep the appointment with our own soul and we all have an appointment with our own soul and not everybody shows up for the appointment that's that's clear Which
1: is great. Um, I I love the fact that in your book you talk about how um, meaning is actually finding us. Like one of the things I noticed was, you know, when uh, when I experienced, you know, teachers or somebody giving me some guidance was, you know, they asked me, you know, what's your purpose? What's your legacy? And at the time when I had that question asked to me, I was quite quite confused. Uh, You know, it was these questions of, I still didn't know what I didn't want. And, and so as life has kind of journeyed on for me, I find that now I do, and maybe I can answer that question. But when I read that you said meaning is trying to find us, it kind of takes the pressure away for us all to try to conclude right away your, uh, you know, either your legacy statement or your mission statement to who you are and what you are, because it's always changing. Um, can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Well, in saying that meaning is seeking us, um, what I'm really suggesting there is that we don't create meaning. We, we either live it or we run from it in some way. Meaning is something that's inherent within us. It's something that is intrinsic. It's, it's really what we mean by the word soul. Soul is simply a metaphor. I'm not speaking in traditional religious terms here. I'm just using it as a metaphor for that deep essence that each of us is. And when we're in service to that, we can't be all the time, that's clear, but when we're in service to that, there's something inside of each of us that supports us. Something rises to give us a sense of purpose, a sense of reciprocity. When you invest in it, it comes back purposefully. It might be full of conflict, it might be full of suffering, and so forth. The people that we would most admire throughout history are people who had lives we wouldn't want to trade for. They might have been lives full of conflict and suffering. But mm-hmm. we admire them because somehow they were true to what was most deeply held within them. And that that's why we honor them, that they were faithful in some way to um, who they most profoundly were and what was calling them as as a person. Now, when when Jung described this, he talked about that being the summons of the individuation process. And by individuation, he didn't mean ordinary individuality. It's certainly not narcissism and self-absorption. Quite the contrary, it's finding something truly worthy of, of, of investing your energies, of your service. I mean, we all have to earn a living, we have to serve our relationships, we have to pay our taxes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. These are legitimate trade-offs with the world around us, uh, mm-hmm. and and that's fine. And many people think that's that's life itself. The question always is, is what is wanting expression through me? Mm-hmm. I don't mean in any sort of grandiose way. It doesn't have to make an impact on the world. It has to be simply... That which is true for me and that to which I am trying to be faithful. Now, to give you a quick example, the one thread that's run throughout my life has been teaching. When I was a child, I was curious, and I think every child's curious. And um, I was just deeply grateful for school teachers. Well, it was always a little scary in school, like with other children, I was deeply grateful for learning from them. And, and throughout my life, the one thing that's been constant has been learning and has been teaching. Mm. And um, I've been teaching at the college level for 53 years now. That's a long time. And um, I've just always valued the learning process. I think working with other people is still part of that learning process. And if I've learned anything along the way, I share that, which is what teaching is. It's, it's sharing what you've learned on life sideways. So for, for me, that's my calling. You know, mm-hmm. as a child, I might have wanted to play for the New York Yankees, or I might have wanted to be president, or a thousand things that a childhood's fantasy, or I might have wanted to be a fireman, you know. But um, my calling is somewhere else. And it's a humbling profession, because you never know enough. You never have stopped learning. If you do, you're dead. So I, I'm just saying it for me, and everybody else is different. For me, the service to learning and the teaching process of passing it on has, has always been the thing that's given me the deepest sense of purpose and, and, and sort of connection with that sort of mysterious energy that runs through the universe and runs through us. Because when you serve that, it serves you. That's the paradox. You mm. feel the support and energization of that and when you are running against your own grain as we often do it leads to burnout exhaustion self-medication anger depression etc etc you know the, the, from a psychodynamic standpoint we don't try to repress symptomatology we rather ask the question why has it come you know what for example when I was, uh, what really I think launched me on into this project of, of working with Jungian psychology was a depression at midlife. My early life, I was a teacher, an academic, and that was rich and valuable, as I mentioned, but something more wanted to be engaged. And so at midlife, I had a depression. and For the first time, I had to really stop, like Ivan Illich, and say, you know, what, what is this life about, really? Is it possible I've been living it in a way different from what my own soul is calling for me? And that's not always a pleasant conversation, but it's a necessary conversation. And so out of that came a whole different career, a whole different second education, so to speak. And, you know, a a separate um, mission, if you will, for for the um, second half of life. So, uh, again, we have these encounters, I mean, we can be doing what's right for us for a certain stage of our journey and then have outlived it, mm-hmm. you know, or, or we, we will find that what works for a certain while is no longer applicable to the territory we find ourselves in. So life is a series of attachments and losses, attachments and losses, mm-hmm. and it's a series of departures. And when we're not departing from where we have been, psychologically speaking, um, then we're stuck. We're dead. And, um, you know, something sours in the personality. And that's what produces psychopathology. Mm -hmm. So what I was about to mention was, you know, at midlife or whenever it happens, if we experience a depression, you know, seldom does it occur to us to ask the question, Um, I know where my complexes are pushing me. I know where the ego is pushing me. I know where my outer demands are. Um, Why has the soul, which is, you know, our translation of the word psyche, why is the psyche autonomously withdrawn its approval and support from the places where all of these other energies are investing their priorities? You know, if I'm doing the right thing, why do I not have that sense of inner satisfaction and so forth? Mm. And, you know, that's always humbling because it tells the ego, well, you're not really the boss. You know, you're, in charging, you're in charge of executing the projects in, in the world. You, you have to carry through and see these things happen, but you're not the boss. And um, when you violate what is more deeply authoritative, authoritative in you, Um, you know, it's going to protest.
0: Yeah, it does. (laughs) (laughs) Could that be why so many people go through the, what we call the midlife crisis and they get divorced or they make these major changes in their life because maybe they're just conflicted um, or not really paying attention to the deeper part of themselves that's telling them to switch gears, maybe. Um, Sure. Yeah.
2: Well, and look, with with respect, the first half of life is pretty much a, a big bumbling mistake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like um, I've had so many well-meaning parents say, well, how do I advise my children so they can avoid these struggles? It's like you can't. No. you yeah. have to say um, is your experience. It's not applicable to them. They've got to find it in their own way. And, and when we talk about midlife, that's why I was trying to make a distinction between the chronological and the psychological dimensions of the second half of life, because Ivan Illich didn't awaken until the last few days of his life. It was not the chronological center. Often what happens, though, in the 40s and maybe 50s, it used to be in the 30s, and still is, um, is, first of all, a person has had choices, has created consequences and patterns has created more or less that provisional life and then the psyche weighs in with its opinion. So you know you have to have some history to reflect upon to even examine it number one. Number two um, you, you, you have to be able to have enough ego strength to bear looking at yourself and perhaps taking that all apart. Now I'll give you a quick example. Many years ago, I was asked to to give a talk on the psychology of relationships to a uh, uh, Honors College seminar on relationship. And it was uh, a, a good seminar. I mean, they, they were very thoughtful students, mostly juniors and seniors. And it was a three-hour uh, seminar held once a week. And the first 90 minutes, we talked about the psychodynamics and the mechanisms of projection transference and other psychological phenomena that occur in every relationship. And then we took a short break, and then we came back, and I said, now let's try to apply what you just learned to your current or your recent relationships. And it was like the curtain came down. These Uh. were bright, talkative kids up to that point. Mm -hmm. At that point, not one of them had a single thing to say. And the reason was at 20 years old or 21 years old, it was almost unbearable, unthinkable that I am living in an unconscious way in this relationship or that dynamics I think I've left far behind with my family of origin are playing a role in the selection and engagement with this person or that I might be accountable in some way for the relationship that just blew up in my face. In other words, (laughs) intelligence had nothing to do with it. What 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 it was about was having enough experience and ego strength to bear to look at that. Mm-hmm. I remember having two thoughts. Um, one, I'll see you when you're 40 and we'll have a different <laughs> conversation. And, and two, this is why I left behind college teaching. No disrespect uh, to 20-year-olds, but yeah. it's like, you know, what do you have to talk about, right? Yeah. Um, and, and we'll talk when you get older. And yeah. uh, it was a different kind of conversation. Yeah. So, again, the point simply is that the first half of life, uh, again, speaking of half very loosely here, is is about stepping out into the world, building ego strength, learning to function, learning to be self-sufficient, learning to be reciprocal in our relationships, and, and so forth. And the second half of life is, if we're lucky to have one, is ask the question, so why am I here really? What is this life about? I mean, what is my purpose in this life? Not defined by others, but defined by something inside of me. And, uh, you know, an infant knows this. It's called instinct. The infant's life is governed by its inner truth. But because of its, again, powerlessness and dependency, it's obliged to daily make those adaptations and sacrifices that leads to that internal estrangement. So we, we lose contact with our guiding source. Jung said once all of our problems come from one source and that is separation from our instincts. Yeah. Nietzsche called us the sick animal. Now on the other hand, the social contract has the right to legitimately ask, you know, compromise with us. You, you learn to use a knife and fork. You learn to stop at a stop sign. These are not unreasonable expectations of the social contract but we're talking about the other kinds of adaptations where again you lose contact with you know that inner sense of your own internal guidance if you will
1: Mm. well it's interesting that you bring up um our humanness in terms of like being in nature because um i find our i i'll say generation but the 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 group of people that we uh, like to talk with and kind of get into uh, conversations with are people who are getting back into nature and kind of utilizing ways to... Um, either be in nature or um, experience more of a, a human movement in nature, um, because there seems to be uh, an expansiveness that kind of happens when you've gotten that call that says, "Hey, this isn't working," and then you go into nature and you kind of feel that rejuvenation mm-hmm. and. And science also says, you know, because we are indoors all the time, our nearsightedness gets affected by not being outside and looking at far distances. So, um, all of that affects us so greatly. And so when we go into just looking at our habits, you know, and how we kind of conformed ourselves, it made me realize how important, um, that uh, finding your inner calling may be just to be outside for a little bit more than you have been the other day, you know, kind of getting yourself into your true nature.
2: Well, you know, as if you step into nature, whether it's the mountains or the forest or the sea, you're you're really repositioning that ego. You're reframing it. It's not mm-hmm. the potentate. Sitting on top of your life making these large decisions, you know, it's repositioned reframed and Is very tiny in the face of the very large Yeah, and that the that that helps I think That's sometimes why I think people want on vacations to go to the mountains or the ocean or wherever It's because there's something in us that longs to have that sort of resizing as it were that mm-hmm. reminder of we're, we're very tiny, swimming in a vast mystery. And, you know, just earlier this week I was reading about they're having discovered uh, another sun with eight planets just as our sun has. And it's a thousand light years away. They can't even see it, but they can tell by uh, interference in, in, in wave uh, measurements that the gravitational pull indicates that. And you, you begin to think about how infinite, and that's one of the nearer systems. You know, wow. At least a billion sol- solar systems have been discovered. And, you know, when when I stop and reflect on that, it, it helps reposition my irritation that the newspaper was late this morning.
1: <laughs> right.
2: You know, traffic is heavy, or something like that.
1: Right, right.
2: And, and that's when we're in some way standing in right relationship. You know, Jung said life is a short pause between two great mysteries. And I think two things about that, you know, it is essentially mysterious, and and no matter what people think about it, we'll wait and see, right? You know, that's only human theory. The, The important thing is to say, all right, to recognize this short pause has to be as luminous as I can, not in terms of world standards or external standards, but in terms of you know what it is within me that that is valid and which is confirmed by my experience.
1: Yes, uh, which is impactful in the way that you know doesn't keep you in that um, I haven't done enough. It keeps you in that same statement of I'm comfortable where I am in terms of who I am and my acceptance of myself. Right?
2: Yeah, that's right. Well, and you know it's it's natural and normal for. The ego to test itself. I mean, there's a place for ambition in life, and to figure out what you can do, uh, how how far do your wings take you, um, and that's that's again a necessary agenda for learning about yourself and you know setting off into the world. Having done that, to keep sort of doing that is rather infantile, because it it means that I'm I'm still being in some way defined by that, that drive for power, that drive for validation. Mm-hmm. And while those are natural human needs, their prevailing keeps one in a kind of driven and, and infantile position. Um, rather is the, the question, all right, what is it that feeds my soul? What is it that feeds my spirit? Um, what is it that gives me a sense of purpose and, and commitment and direction? And that's a different question. Right. And it means shifting the focus of ones and energies, you know. And, you know, so the same, for example, in writing. I mean, there was a time in my life when I was in the publisher parish world and something in me rebelled. I I wrote a book uh, when I was very young because I was expected to. Something rebelled and I didn't write again for 20 some years. I was by that time I was out of academia. And I started writing on subjects that were important to me, rather than things I had to do to prove my capacity for research. Um, I, I found that I was not a researcher; I could do it, but it, there was no joy in that. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what I found was there were subjects such as the Middle Passage and Swamplands of the Soul, and and you know questions like that that were really the ones that that spoke to me. So that's when the book started pouring forth. And they only have come out in the last, what, 20 years, you know, 14 books in 20 years. And it was like all of that time, those, those books were there wanting to be expressed. Um, and it was almost like carrying eggs, you know, the eggs are mm. there, but they have to in some way be open. But if they had been open prematurely, you know, it, it would have been just bad. That's all. It would, wouldn't have worked. I, I My head was full of knowledge, but very little sense of why is this so important to you? What does mm. this mean? And in what way can this be helpful to people? You see, those are different questions.
1: Those are wonderful questions to, to be aware of because... Of the idea of um, writing a book, there's always that uh, writer's block or that sense of like, do I even know what I'm writing about? And, you know, who who's done this before and all these little like ego ways of kind of you know, sabotaging yourself out of writing something. And then you talk to someone who has written and they said they, they, they just kind of comes through them. The same thing we just talked about earlier. And uh, that, what you just said really makes it clear. Like, you know, you needed to kind of nurture it in yourself before it could really kind of pass through.
2: Yeah. Yeah. In other words, I could have written more as an academic and, and, you know, maybe, Added a few more lines to a, a, a curriculum vita, but so what? I mean, mm. you know, that and two bucks will buy you a cup of coffee. You know. <laughs> <laughs> I love your I, I love I,
1: your reality. It's I, true. <laughs> I found
2: that it, it's meaningless. You know, I mean, I've done it, but I found it was meaningless.
1: Yeah. And
2: it's something else to write about something you really care about and. Um, yeah. If someone else can profit from that, terrific. I mean, that's, that's, that's a bonus, but it's really secondary to, um, you know, allowing that process uh, some kind of uh, expression. I mean, through the years, I've had so many people say, well, I will always want to do this. And, you know, there's a but in that sense. Yeah. I, wanted to, <laughs> I wanted to write. I wanted to learn this language. I wanted to learn the piano play the piano. And there's always a but in that sentence, which is really what that is: is a complex that comes mm-hmm. up, and in a sense shuts them down. Mm-hmm. Because if they, if you push them a little bit, and they say, "Well, I don't, I, you know, I, I can't take art lessons. I can't draw a straight line." Well, art's not about drawing straight lines, as you may have noticed. You know, um, you know, if you make music, it's for you, not for the world. Right. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be at Carnegie Hall. It's Because something in you wishes to express itself musically. How about honoring that, you see? In other words, the the voices we have in our head about feeling foolish, a feeling that somebody will laugh at us, somebody will be critical of us, um, uh, or or whatever we have to do or say is unimportant, those are complexes. You know, we weren't born with them. We picked them up along the way. And and again, a a complex is simply a cluster of your psychological history. It's charged with uh, energy. It affects your body, it affects your feeling function, but it also has uh, a kind of splinter narrative attached to it. If you do this, you're going to lose that person's approval and that activates an old field of anxiety, or if you do this, you're going to feel ridiculous. Or someone is going to laugh at you. Right. Whatever the hidden message is, and often that's unconscious, when you ferret it out, you realize its origin has you know, some, some place in your early developmental history. But we stay wired, so to speak, to those places in our psychological history. And that's why we tend to stay stuck. That's why we avoid uh, living what wants to live through us. That's why we live sort of contained, narrow, cautious, and sometimes sterile lives yeah.
1: that well, is so true
0: <laughs> <laughs> as you were speaking i I was the the whole dynamic of social media came up for me, and how that is um how the importance of getting likes and, get, and building an audience that way is, has become a, a social norm for people and, and a part of their ego and their uh, self-worth as well in, uh, in a big way. Um, I also heard you say in one of your interviews something to the extent of like, as you build an audience, or the bigger the audience, the less consciousness uh, mm-hmm. It has it is you said something. I don't know if that was exactly how you said it But can you speak to that and also how you think where you think we're going with this whole? Social media dynamic and and what it is doing to people or how is how how is our psyche? Adapting mm-hmm. to this, you know,
2: well, there are several questions there frankly that yeah. you just <laughs> Um First of all, I personally have nothing to do with social media per se mm-hmm. Right. Um, it's so,
0: probably a good I'm, idea.
2: I'm using this medium as a teaching function. That's why I said yes. You know, uh, I, I, I I don't get involved with it, but I know many people who do, and that's fine. Um, it's interesting how while the internet connects us, it also atomizes our lives in the sense it produces more and more um, isolation. Mm-hmm. You know, people. I mean, we're sitting here talking to each other via a computer screen. And that's good, given the distance between us. But, you know, people live their lives in some way separated. I mean, I know people communicate who are a room apart, communicate by by such means. But, you know, again, social media is also, you know, a great invention. But wherever an invention, a technological breakthrough occurs, the human shadow follows quickly. Mm-hmm. And we know, uh, driving to work this morning, I was listening to, um, NPR here in Washington They we were talking about how hate groups uh, have never had better recruitment in their life, except through social media and how they've taken over certain sites and, you know, fascistic groups and neo-Nazi groups and, and anti-Semitic groups, et cetera, et cetera. You know, that, that, that's the dark side of human nature. It fills in the gaps very quickly. So, you know, it's we're going through a a revolution in the sense in which, for good or for ill, we live in the information age. And at some level, we're drowning in information, again. But information does not equate to knowledge. Knowledge is trying to understand how this relates to that, what's the purpose of this and how it, it, um, you know, what's the structure of it and, and, and what is its value. And that, and knowledge alone is not yet wisdom, you know, wisdom is, is seeing this in a much larger context, and how it, how it affects your life. So, we're drowning in information, we saw uh, evidence, there's plenty of evidence from national sources that maybe even elements of our recent election were hijacked, you know, by the subversion of the internet and social media. And, and trolls and people, political groups and so forth. And I don't see that diminishing. I think it's only going to increase. So it, it, it will become, as it already is, in some way an unreliable ins, uh, instrument, even as you have your identity hacked and so forth. And, you know, I can't even go to a doctor anymore without having an online account with them, literally. Oh, wow. And, yeah. and, you know, so anything that's online, you know, somebody has access to. right and and so forth so there's ironically <laughs> in trying to build community we're also losing our individuality we're losing our, our anonymity we're losing our privacy and we're subjected to the onslaught of, of the human shadow so you know it's 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 a mixed blessing and um, I, I, I know people who are withdrawing or you know not not practicing with social media anymore and, and the reason for that is because they, they found themselves in some way in, as you said, building a certain kind of ego gratification on the one hand, having in some other way, having to respond to people all the time, it was in, in a significant way taking them away from themselves, Yeah, you know? And that's, again, one of those phenomena that separates us from ourselves. That's why all of my writing and work in the last you know few decades has been is about helping people you know reconnect with themselves and um you know people don't come in and necessarily say well it's, it's I'm in the second half of life, so it's time for me to keep my appointment <laughs> they, they would that way, but they might talk about a relational crisis they might talk about a depression or Talk about a loss of meaning and purpose in their life. And, um, excuse me. And, um, you know, then then you begin to realize, all right, another kind of conversation has to occur here. A conversation between you and your own soul. Mm. Now, I'm not suggesting that everybody be in therapy. I'm not (laughs) suggesting that everybody's an introvert, because clearly they're not. I'm talking about how easily we are distracted from that kind of conversation with our own soul. That itself is not new. In the 17th century, Blaise Pascal, the famous French mathematician, inventor and mystic, said once that the court even though these were the wealthy privileged people who could sort of purchase anything, the court had to invent the gesture because if they stopped and paused and reflected on their own soul, they would quickly grow miserable and fearful. Oh. And the jester was invented to distract them. The phrase that Pascal used was divertissement. That means diversion. So we live in a culture whose chief treatment plan for existential anxiety is diversion. Mm. You know, 24-7. You can plug something in, turn it on, have the illusion of connection, and essentially be, at the end of your life, um, profoundly disconnected from yourself, from nature, from each other, and, and from yourself with all these wonderful tools. So it's a, it can be like a Trojan horse that is a great gift, but it actually leads to um, you know, a further sense of uh, self-estrangement.
0: Yes, yeah, that's, uh, yeah. that's great. Yeah, that was a great uh, answer. Thank you. Yeah.
1: One of the questions I have, and uh, I know we're getting close to the end, but uh, I just simply wanted to talk a little bit about um, the second part of life and my version of what I'm seeing with my 90 year old uh, mother-in-law, which is a gift. I know she's showing me a lot of things, um, but it kind of relates to the idea of letting go of the material world and letting go of your um, ideas of um, the timeline that you had of like, this was bought there and this was this gift from so-and-so. But the idea of the souls, um, like I don't know if it's this is kind of how I want to phrase it, but maybe you have a better way is the cleanup aspect of not leaving all these um, things kind of to others to take care of, Uh, uh, because it kind of really opened me up to really seeing how important it was to even my part of my life is to not be. Um, bogged down by so much of this abundance that we have every day and information that we have and and what you talk about in your books, you know, that we just really attach so much to certain things.
2: Mm -hmm. Well, I mentioned a moment ago that the great treatment plan for existential anxiety was diversion, you know, that steady hum that keeps us from reflecting on our lives uh, it's also true to say that the operative religion of the Western world, uh, by that I mean where people invest their values, their, invest their, their energy, is materialism. And it's been so for a century, approximately, with increasing uh, urgency. In other words, in, in the face of um, disconnect, in the face of feelings of emptiness, let's fill it with as many purchases as we can. You know. We're at a time when every newscast is is reflecting on how quickly Amazon or somebody else or the delivery systems will get packages to people. I mean it's a kind of crazy frenzy. What is that about? I mean, we've absolutely lost any connection to really what it's about. And and, and it's like that material abundance um, is profoundly delusional. In other words, if it worked, we'd know it. Mm-hmm has it provided people an abiding sense of connection purpose dignity and depth and the answer is obviously no and one one waits for the next iteration of an iphone or one waits for the newest gimmick or the newest game or something like that and i'm sounding awfully preachy i'm not judging people who are caught in that i actually feel sympathy for them because i i think in the end it betrays one that's the paradox Um, You know, I have objects in my life. I'm I'm talking into a computer. I have a television set at home. I drove here in a car. It's not the object. It's what we project onto it that makes the difference. And there's a lot of unconscious projection. We don't make projections consciously. It's an unconscious triggering of energy within us that goes out onto the other. And the projection can be onto romantic love. It can be onto materialism. It can be onto power. It can be onto any other. And the other is in some way always going to be other and therefore will fail or let down or uh, prove insufficient for the magnitude of, of the soul's desires. So again, if purchasing per se provided an abiding sense of satisfaction, then, you know, then, then we'd see a lot of happy people, but we don't. We see people knocking each other down in, 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 in mega stores to, to grab hold of a new television set or something like that. It's like, what is that about? Is mm. that, you know, What yeah. is that about? It's a lot of human energy. To give you a peculiar example, everybody's heard of Epicurus, the ancient Greek philosopher, and they associate Epicurus with Epicurean, which means fine dining. Right. Well, ironically, Epicurus was arguing the opposite. He wasn't for or against eating. (laughs) What he was saying was, we are plant creatures and pain-avoiding creatures. He said, however, most people get caught in the sort of axis of, of intensity. So we'll gravitate towards something that gives immediate sense of satisfaction, but it's obviously of short duration. So if it's a good meal, fine, it's a good meal. The second you've eaten, you don't want any more food. It's not. It has no durability. It's something that has to re- repeat, and therefore it produces addictions and, and dependencies and, and so forth. And he said there's another axis to this pleasure-pain thing, and that is duration. What, what abides? What gives uh, long-term satisfaction? What gives a, a sense of, of um, sustenance over time? And of course for him, um, shockingly, as a philosopher, he said it's philosophy. That's the thing that gave him a greater sense of long-term satisfaction. And I was just saying, for for me, learning and teaching have been the Epicurean delight for years. Doesn't mean I can't enjoy a good meal or, or something else like that. It's just that you know, in in this plastic throwaway culture, there's something inherently disappointing about it because. Mm-hmm. The next object will be the one that disappoints me in the end. Mm. I remember a person once who had devoted her life to the fashion industry. She said, one day it occurred to me, I'm giving all my energy to something that a year from now, all of us will think is ugly
1: yeah right. yeah or, or take or take twenty years to be uh popular again or yeah. it's always- most of it never
0: really changes if you actually pay attention there's like fundamental stuff but you know the thing is uh that I see too is that marketing uh the whole basis of marketing is to help is to make people feel like they're not enough so they're buying these yes. things to feel like they are enough, and that i mean I remember. And when I was younger, it wasn't as strong as it is now, but it really, I remember, I want to say like the nineties and early two thousands, it really started, uh, that kind of feeling started hitting the market pretty hard, especially in the fashion industry. And at my life, a time where I had just had kids and coming back from a pregnancy body and feeling Mm -hmm. really bad about my body and how I looked and my self-esteem and all that kind of stuff and having a new identity and. I just remember clearly that I was just like buying clothes left and right just to make myself feel better just so I, you know, because I just Mm -hmm. felt like so empty at that time. So, um, yeah, that's, uh, I think it's a big part of it. I
2: I think it is, is often, of course, generating need where the need's not actually there. You know, you can create the sense of needing something or wanting something. Yeah. as it's shiny and new, like a new automobile or a new iphone or something like that or you're right that this will make your life more meaningful and purposeful and okay try it if it works for you you know good luck in most cases it doesn't and and there's nothing wrong with the object it's what we project onto it that's the point right
1: right i think the part i want to add is um the the aspect of when I get to that age, if I'm lucky of my mother-in-law is to start to have to let go of things. And that seems so difficult in watching her. um, You know, it's like out of mind, out of sight kind of thing works, but when she sees it, it has these big emotional uh, components to it. And I, I kind of, you know, we had to move her into a senior living and what really kind of occurred to me was, Half of these things are broken. Things are not as cherishable as she thinks they are. And it's like having a disconnect to having someone to say to you or say to her, hey, you know, um, you don't need this. It's okay to let it go. But that process isn't so easy, you know.
2: Well, at at one level, we can understand how one's uh, sense of self and sense of history can be attached to certain objects, pictures, so forth. Um, in another way, um, you know, the the proper aging process is about progressive detachment from the hold the world has upon us. Mm. Um, the ideal departure would be to relinquish our attachment to life, just as we're leaving it. You see,
1: right.
2: now there's nothing wrong with the life force. <laughs> That's not my point. It's it's that the the sort of ego driven complex driven um clinging to it is is not only delusional because we can't hang on to it but it also creates you know obsessional behavior and um uh and obsessions and compulsive behavior and and also um leads ultimately to disappointment and and so forth so You know, the German word for serenity, Gelassenheit, means in terms of its component pieces, the condition of having let go. You know, to let go of the ego attachment to something provides one a sense of serenity. Yeah. And and that's why in all the 12-step groups, the so-called serenity prayer is about knowing all of your frenetic behavior is just making things worse. And you have to let go of that in order to be present to other aspects of your life. And, um, you know, if if ever there's been a failed religion, it's materialism. Mm. And yet, by and large, it's the one we have. I mean, it's the yeah. one that, again, occupies. You know, Jung said, you know, a person's religion is where they really invest their daily energies, not where they think they say. But, um, you know, when, when the pragmatic question is, where do you really put your values? And, and materialism is... I think in lieu of deep connections to one's own soul, to the soul of others through relationship and, and through meaningful uh, participation in life, you know, um, and, and that, that, you know, Freud said the requisites for sanity were work and love. Well, obviously, he didn't mean drudgery, but he meant work that's purposeful. If it's purposeful, you know, that's part of how we fulfill ourselves in this, this world. And and love as well. So, again, underneath all of this, there is some kind of energy. That's all we can describe it as. An energy that is autonomous, that was there from the beginning, that is constantly present, and which is supportive and directive um, and instructive when we pay attention to it yeah and when we don't, it pathologizes, which means it's going to express its disfavor symptomatically and And often that's what brings people into you know the therapy uh, setting with me. Um, not that they're bad people in any way whatsoever. Quite the contrary, they're usually very well intentioned. it's It's that something inside has not been valued sufficiently, that it's it's expressed itself in some distressing form. And again, that's the invitation to a different kind of conversation, which I think makes one's life, um, frankly, more interesting, and certainly deepens and dignifies the the meaning of one's journey.
1: Right. Wow. I mean, as always, your eloquence and ability to express the uh, words uh, that... Um, just seamlessly come from your inner self. Just makes um, makes makes everything seem a little simpler. So I appreciate that. Um, I appreciate your books. Um, they are treasures of, of just sweet um, and basically sweet little secrets of life that I think if you just picked up one and just looked at maybe a a, just a page or two, you'd find something that was relative to the reader. It's very impactful for me, and I have been um, blessed to have been able to be to your lectures to talk with you today. Um, and um, hopefully we can talk with you one other time in the future. Um, hopefully social media will um, help us uh, provide a better platform where, you know— th- Information that is as impertinent like this could be um, given to people in a way that everyone can decipher and discern stuff better.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, let me just say I'm grateful if those books and lectures have been helpful to you in some way. But, you know, that's what a teacher does. And I'm just doing what I do and serving a profession that in turn has uh, served me. And um, that's that's a privilege. So thank you.
0: Thank you. Thank you.
1: Yeah. Thank you Thank for you. coming on. You too. All right.
0: Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for listening today. If you'd like to access the show notes, watch this episode, and share your thoughts, head on over to PureEnergyPDX.com. As well, you can download your free guide to better digestion because as we know, better digestive motility leads to hormonal balance and a healthier metabolism. We'd love it if you'd subscribe on iTunes and leave us a great review as it helps us get our information out to more people. As well, we'd love it if you'd share this episode with your friends. If you want to support us by contributing to the production cost of this podcast, you can head over to patreon.com slash integrate yourself. Thanks so much, everybody, and happy new year. We'll see you guys in 2018. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.